Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research podcast. The following episode is taken from our Think and Drink series of talks, which are informal conversations by humanities faculty, researchers, and practitioners on a range of topics. Please subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook for notifications on future events. Welcome, everyone, to the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research Think and Drink series of virtual talks. Uh, we hope you are all as well and healthy as you could possibly be, uh, given the state of the world. Uh, I'm Scott Hinkle. I'm the director of the Wyoming Institute for Humanities Research. And uh, the title of tonight's conversation is A Historical Perspective on Politics in Times of Crisis. Uh, on this one, I'll just say, I am ever so happy uh, that our recent conversations have been keenly attuned to the state of the world in which we live. And here in Wyoming, our legislature is about ready to go into special session to decide what is to be done about the world in which we live. So uh, I know that our panelists have wisdom to share, and I hope that elected officials everywhere will learn from the wisdom that we're going to hear tonight. I am thrilled to introduce to you uh, Dr. Ken Giroux, Professor of Statistics, who will be tonight's moderator, who will introduce our panelists. So please, welcome. Hi, Scott. <clears throat> so we have with us today a wonderful panel of three historians who I will now introduce. Um, all three study different aspects of European history, Germany in particular, and I'm going to emphasize differences in their interests because it's the convergence of those different interests that will uh, enrich in this, this conversation. Catherine Julian, a current book project of Dr. Catherine Julian, explores Catholic religious orders and sacred space in socialist Central Europe. Currently on the faculty of Maryville College, that's in Tennessee, correct? This summer, she will be moving to Westminster College in Salt Lake City. So she's gonna be in the Rocky Mountain region by fall. And a little ahead of time, we'll say welcome on behalf of those of us in this part of the country. Um, Adam Blackler is on the faculty at the University of Wyoming and remind me where that is? I forget, you're gonna to have to remind me, Ken. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's in Laramie, but I haven't seen the campus for a few weeks, so I'm not sure. Um, he's an active publisher in studies of aspects of German colonialism, race, and genocide. His most recent book project, A Cultural History of Genocide, is scheduled to release this fall. And then from the middle of the continent, more or less, another windy, uh, windy neighborhood, Northwestern Universities in Chicago, Northwestern Universities, Dr. Lauren Stokes has special interest in guest workers and refugees and migration, among other things. A current book bears the tentative title, Fear of the Family, Guest Workers and Family Migration in West Germany. So their focal point of their studies as historians is Europe, Germany in particular, but today they're gonna to be drawing on that knowledge, that learning to uh, bring the current moment, including our lives in, into the conversation. So. It's not going to be all about Europe. Catherine, Adam, and Lauren, I welcome and I thank you um, for taking the time to be part of this conversation. Uh, let's perhaps let's start with uh, brief opening remarks. I didn't decide who might go first. 
um, and then I'll try to stump you with questions. Okay. Perfect. Catherine. Um, okay, yes, I'll start. So I'm, I'm Catherine. Um, as Ken mentioned, I research communities, uh, religious communities and socialist societies, but um, my interests are very broad, which will be great for our conversation tonight. And I teach at liberal arts colleges. So um, I teach very broadly as well. Um, I'm really interested in global truth and reconciliation commissions, um, post-conflict memory cultures, I'm working on a kind of a second project right now about the ecology of pilgrimage sites in Central Europe and East Asia, venturing out a little bit. Um, and today I'm gonna to be talking a lot, um, or hopefully having a conversation with all of you about how historical memory in particular is tied to present day politics in places like Central and Eastern Europe, um, especially in moments of crisis. And this is something that I've been thinking about a lot since I lived in Hungary in 2007. Um, and we see how all of that's kind of culminated this year with um, COVID-19 in Hungary. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Catherine. Lauren? Sure, thank you. Uh, so uh, I'm Lauren Stokes. Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, and so my main interest is really in the history of migration. Uh, and so I'll say something about how I got interested in the topic of crisis in particular. Uh, so a few years ago now, uh, in 2015, um, there was a the big European refugee crisis or migrant crisis variously called. Uh, and this was happening as it so happened as I was finishing my dissertation on immigration policy in German history. Uh, and I was really struck by the fact that politicians seem to be saying, this is a new crisis, this is an unprecedented crisis. And I felt like I had spent the last six years reading all of their statements for the previous 50 years. And if I was like a robot, I could have created the text that they were saying in that day. Um, I felt like they were just repeating the same scripts that they had been saying about migration for decades. Uh, and so I became really interested in thinking about what a crisis is uh, and how we understand crises historically, uh, particularly in relationship to migration. Um, but I think more broadly in terms of what does the script of crisis do for political possibilities? And so that's what I'm looking forward to talking about. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ken, and uh, I want to extend my uh, sincere thanks to both professors uh, Julian and Stokes for joining us. Uh, great colleagues, great friends, um, and I'm really glad this was this was able to uh, happen for all of us to come together. Um, I'll speak very briefly. Uh, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, I'm a historian primarily of um, colonialism, of race, of nationalism, uh, related to Germany in primarily a, a context of empire. Um, a book that I'm finishing this month, and everyone has to hold me to that, uh, the manuscript at least, um, focuses specifically on German Southwest Africa, which is the present day state of Namibia, and Germany's long and very violent history in that space. Um, uh, uh, certainly a topic for another time perhaps. Um, and while that subject, broadly speaking, would certainly uh, be applicable to our conversation uh, this afternoon or evening, depending on where we are. Um, I actually am hoping to kind of dovetail uh, uh, the previous two comments. Uh, I'm hoping to talk about something that I am interested in 
uh, from a potential for research, um, but something I've been teaching a lot about the last couple of years, and that is specifically the history of Weimar Germany. Um, Weimar is everywhere uh, in some ways, uh, and it, including for those that are not German history uh, fanatics like a lot of us. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think some positive and some negative. Um, and uh, if no one knows anything about Weimar, uh, one thing they may know is that it was the political experience in Germany uh, that eventually gave way to the Nazis. Uh, and if we're talking about politics in crisis, uh, I, it's hard, I'd be hard pressed to find uh, another example, at least historically speaking, that, that would be applicable to this conversation. Um, so I look forward to having that conversation and, and learning a whole bunch. So thank you. Well, thanks. I'll, I'll start with a question. I'm going to try to take off from some of your introductory remarks, but maybe not fully, but we will get there. And I don't have any particular order of uh, speaker in this. So um, when I pose a question, whoever wants to jump in, jump in, and I'll sit back and listen to the three of you until um, it looks like you're running out of ideas on that question. So um, in, in this spring, in March of this year, the Hungarian Prime Minister Orban um, now has the authority to rule indefinitely by decree. Um, there are certainly people in this country who are concerned about a similar unfolding or potential for a similar unfolding phenomena. Um, is that erosion of democracy uh, particular to Hungary and Central Europe? Is it part of a broader uh, phenomenon? And how is it related to, or how is the activation of that related to uh, the, our current crisis? I'll say cor coronavirus primarily. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Ken. I'll jump in on that one to start off. Um, because I think this has been a long process in Hungary. Um, COVID-19 has really highlighted a long erosion of democracy that started much earlier. Um, even when I, I taught English there in 2007, and even when I was there then, I noticed um, the rise of the right wing already, um, kind of some right wing militia groups that I saw in the town I taught in. Um, and this shows how quickly this type of thing can escalate in a country too. So no one's quite safe from this kind of populism um, and the rise of the right wing. Um, and so 2008 economic crisis um, was the first time when the Hungarian um, right wing conservatives, the Fidesz party is the, the party that Orban is in, um, began to really consolidate power and um, attracted a lot of people to their message. Um, and so that first crisis, the first economic crisis, 2008, 2008 the recession, um, began even more of this kind of process toward authoritarianism. Um, since Fidesz and Orban have been elected, um, there has been an erosion of the public sphere, kind of an attack on higher education, the Academy of Sciences, um, an attack on journalists. The ruling party in Hungary now controls something like 90% of media outlets. So there's really only one message um, getting out. So this has looked particular in Hungary um, to some extent. And I'll talk maybe later about how historical memory has really played into the Hungarian case and maybe kind of society's understanding of their own history. Um, and Orban has clearly capitalized on that. But I think to your question that this really is um, this kind of 
democracy in danger. This is a crisis all over the world. And I think that we're going to see more of that with coronavirus or more kind of these strongmen leaders aspiring to do what Orban has done. Um, and you kind of mentioned this, but so what was passed on March 30th was the coronavirus law. And this removed any checks on Orban's power. And it allows his government to regulate issues by government decree. As long as it can make the argument that the issue that it's regulating is somehow tangentially related to the coronavirus. Um, the idea is that, well, we don't have time for a democratic parliamentarian debate about this. We've got to make a decision um, about public health. But right now, it, it kind of appears that these decrees are only narrowly related to public health. Um, he's been able to take money away from political opponents to um, give as part of a stimulus, um, some things like that, um, controlling media, threatening to jail journalists who circulate fake news. And I think we hear some of that as well. And, and experts are, and this is gonna also sound familiar to us in the United States, experts um, and human rights activists are very concerned that the Orban government could start jailing um, disease experts or whistleblowers who highlight that they haven't done enough with the coronavirus. Um, Orban also dismantled a pandemic team in 2017. Mm -hmm. So um, we clearly see some overlap. Um, I know like in Brazil also you see a strong man, um, Bolsonaro, who's trying to emulate some of this too. So I, you, you, you too can also weigh in on this. Sounds like a really simple and elegant way to get things done. Sign me up. Right. What could <laughs> Adam, go wrong? Yeah, what could go wrong? Adam or Lauren <laughs> want to jump in? Okay. Perfect. Um, thank you, Catherine. Uh, I am in full agreement. Um, and I think my way of answering this question, and again, in the context of Weimar specifically, um, and, and related to your question. Um, this is not unique to our present day period and time. Um, and it is not unique to places like Germany or places like Hungary or Brazil, places that might not have as long of a, a history of liberal democracy as places like, for instance, France or the United States or, or elsewhere. And I think that's something to be very cognizant of. Um, and in the context of Weimar, um, I think if there's one lesson I always try and convey to my students, uh, it's that Weimar was not doomed to inevitable, inevitable failure. It absolutely was not. Um, it had immense potential. Um, and this is not some romanticized uh, perception of my own in 2020. This is absolute fact. If you really look at, at the, the state of affairs, politically, economically, socially, and otherwise, um, during that 14 year period of time. And, and I should mention, uh, just in case, for those that in the audience that might not know, Weimar Germany is approximately the period in, in German history from the end of the First World War until the, uh, the appointment of Adolf Hitler in January of 1933. So about a 14 year period of time. Um, and I think it's vital that we understand that uh, because if Weimar, again, oftentimes is, is talked about at all, it's usually in this, in this very passive way where it was doomed to failure when it was an actual active destruction that took place. Uh, and if we understand that and accept that reality and something I, I'd be happy to talk about in more detail as we go forward, um, we then have to ask ourselves, 
how was that possible and what were those and what are some potential lessons that we could learn about and take away from that experience in the present day. Uh, and again, happy to, to discuss this in more detail later on, but I think that's the, the main crux uh, to your question and the historical links between them. Great. Uh, I'll actually take this in a slightly different direction, but um, something Catherine, both Catherine and Adam said uh, made me think about um, 1945 in Germany. Uh, Nazi Germany had been defeated. The Allies came in. They said, the number one thing we have to do is make sure that uh, there will never be another Hitler in Germany, right? That Germany will never become a dictatorship, a fascist dictatorship again. And so in West Germany, which was the part of Germany that was occupied by the United States, uh, the United Kingdom and France, uh, one of the ways that they really wanted to do this was to institute federalism um, so that there would be a lot of authority devolved to the smaller parts of Germany. The person sitting in the, you know, the president's seat in the capital wouldn't have all the power to give emergency decrees and to say, I decide, what media gets to go out to the public. Um, all of the individual little states in Germany have a lot of power in terms of determining their own media and their own policies. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about federalism in the context of the COVID crisis. Um, contemporary Germany still has a lot of federal um, aspects. And of course, the United States has a lot of federal aspects. Uh, and looking at COVID, um, our federalism has led to some chaos, right? There have been reports of, let's say, Donald Trump um, and the federal government intercepting uh, shipments of PPE uh, protection for healthcare workers that individual governors have gotten for their states. But it also means that um, individual governors and legislatures have been able to make the decisions they feel are best for their own people, um, right? That Trump uh, and the executive branch have not yet been able to overrule and say, Governor Pritzker, who's my governor here in Illinois, uh, you can't have a stay-at-home order. Um, and as you said, kind of the Wyoming legislature is meeting tomorrow to decide what to do. And it's federalism that kind of makes that possible. So it's interesting to think about how the kind of lesson, that federalist lesson we drew from Nazi Germany, um, how is that playing out today? Is it actually good for democracy? I don't know a lot about whether Hungary had federal institutions prior to um, prior to Orban. Uh, in terms of the question of whether this is like a global democratic crisis, I think it's interesting too to think about how all of these kind of strong men, we think of them as very nationalistic, uh, correctly, <laughs> um, right? They talk about making America great again, or Hungary being, having to recover its former glory, or in Brazil uh, or Turkey, similar stories. Um, but they also all look at what the others do. Uh, they, um, they kind of emulate other strong men um, and other nationalist movements around the world. And so I think it's really useful to think about how, even though they're deeply nationalistic maybe, and talk about wanting to pull back from the international order, uh, they get influenced by looking at people like Orban in Hungary, um, Erdogan in Turkey, Bolsonaro in Brazil. Trump, arguably, to some sense here. So, thanks. yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, to to speak to that, I mean, I think a lot of these 
strong men, despite the fact, like you're saying, Lauren, they're so nationalistic. Um, they're also in communication with each other in, in maybe not in a personal way all the time, but just like praising each other randomly, just kind of name dropping. Um, I was one of my students this past semester came across um, a video of Orban and Chuck Norris talking. I don't, I'm not entirely sure why Chuck Norris was in Hungary. It seems about right, whatever weird politics going on. Um, but he's like riding around in this car with Orban and they're talking about how hard all of like these great men leaders have it. And, you know, Orban's trying to kind of style himself as like, I'm from like a working class, like I'm a scrapper. He was, I mean, he's from like a middle-class family in Sekishvihervar in Hungary. But um, anyway, he's in this video, they're both kind of like praising Trump. Like, oh yeah, people, the liberals criticize me. Um, and Orban has made it um, his campaign to um, style Hungary as an illiberal democracy. He sees himself not necessarily going back, but this kind of bizarre, not, I mean, not progressive, but like he's the wave of the future. This illiberal democracy is the new model that's going to be successful in Europe. Um, but the reality of it is, right, that illiberal democracies are not democracies. Adam, I'm sure you know this with Weimar, I mean, not Weimar, but well, Weimar into the, into Nazism, um, that illiberal political movements typically become authoritarianism. And I think that's what we're seeing in Hungary and maybe some other places as well, that this crisis atmosphere has really just stripped away the veneer of democracy. It's good. All three of you spoke to and used different words, but um, um, dictatorships didn't quite get mentioned directly, but it, it could have. Um, authoritarian, strong man. Um, and currently, um, you all spoke to, and it's part of our, our current lexicon, I guess, to think of that authoritarianism, that strong man uh, approach to the world coming from, quote unquote, the political right. Um, but historically, and, and I, I think this is okay to ask because I'm speaking to three historians, um, that authoritarianism has sometimes been an aspect of both the left and the right, or the right. Can, can you help? It's not a right-wing phenomenon purely, and I don't, I can't say I understand that at all, um, and so I'd be glad to hear if you guys could elucidate and educate me. I'm I'm happy to jump in uh, briefly just to, uh, again, with respect to Weimar, um, while of course the Nazis are, and without question, and don't let any other media personality say otherwise, Nazism is an extreme ultra-right movement. Um, initially in Weimar's beginning, it was the fear of ultra-left uh, forms of totalitarianism that really, uh, in many respects, I would say, uh, was one of the defining crises that we could, the lingering crises that, in many respects, really um, uh, plague uh, the, the regime, for, or I should say the regime, the, the republic for the 14 years it was in existence. Um, and in particular, it was because of this looming threat of the Soviet Union. Uh, and I think it's something that oftentimes, at least in, in the United States, sometimes is forgotten uh, during that 
immediate period, the 1920s, early 1930s, is that the specter, the global specter in the world at that time, for the most part, was the Soviet Union. The United States doesn't recognize it, recognize the Soviet Union and politically until 1933. So this is not something that um, uh, we immediately think of the Nazis again in this time period. It was not something that, that we should uh, uh, dismiss lightly. Um, and some specific examples. Um, right as Weimar started to found, or right as politicians started to found Weimar in January and February of 1919, uh, something called the Spartacus Aufstand, the so-called Spartacus Uprising, uh, uh, kind of uh, erupted throughout much of Germany, primarily in cities. Um, uh, for a period of time, Munich and Bavaria seceded from Germany uh, and declared itself a Soviet uh, in the hopes of linking up with Trotsky's Red Army. Um, that memory uh, lingered, um, and I think it had a big impact on um, a, a permanent fear of the ultra-left that then, over time, certainly did not make the rise of an extreme right inevitable, but it made it more, um, I think it made, the possibility was there because it was more familiar uh, uh, than something like the Soviet Union. So in this historical context, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely a part of both political uh, spectrums, if we want to call it that. Yeah, I can speak really briefly to uh, totalitarianism, and I'd be curious to hear Catherine on this as well, because I know you study uh, so state socialism, so I'm sure you have a few things to say about totalitarianism. But yeah, my from my understanding of the kind of term, it really first comes into popular use um, in the late 1940s and early 1950s as a way to kind of put together fascist regimes like the ones that had just been defeated in World War II, Hitler's Germany, Mussolini's Italy, uh, arguably Japan, um, with this uh, new Cold War threat of the Soviet Union. Uh, and so to bring together kind of these right and left wing um, instantiations of what a state should look like. Uh, again, to go back to something I said earlier, um, both of these are characterized by pretty deep centralization um, and by an attempt to kind of control more aspects of life than we expect in a, in a democratic regime. Um, but yeah, I'd be curious to hear Catherine talk about this because I know you probably know the most about any of us about state socialism, so. Well, I don't know if I would go that far <laughs> that I know that I know the most, but um, yeah, I mean, the obviously the the people I study are living in those systems of socialism, so they certainly don't characterize them as totalitarian at all. Um, but like Lauren has just said, it um, is kind of this term that's used by opponents of communism during the Cold War to compare it to. Um, fascist totalitarianism or, um, you know, other forms of some sort of authoritarian government. And what's interesting is I, I think that, um, to go back to Hungary's current political situation, I think that, that Orban would use that comparison. He um, started Fidesz, this party, in 1988 as um, an opposition party to communism in Hungary. And so they always kind of um, framed themselves um, against the communists, but also against the Nazis, against fascism. And that's part of Hungary's memory culture too, 
is this um, opposition to both forms of totalitarianism. They were the victims of totalitarianism. And I'm not sure that that term gets bandied about a lot in public use or with people a lot, but certainly I, I still hear scholars using that term. Um, and I know it's, it's kind of a fraught term now, but, but absolutely, yeah. So this um, uh, question is a uh, clarification one, I suppose. It's an aside to some extent. But his, you, you, several of you have mentioned, used the term historical memory. Um, and so what does that mean? Uh, how long does it last? Um, and for example, in our current medically oriented crisis, my, my question would be, oh, and by the way, that previous question came from the audience and I'm currently riffing on audience questions now too, uh, just so you know. Um, did the Spanish flu from 100 years ago, is that part of our historical memory now in terms of how we're responding or is it too far back? I mean, at this moment, for example, there are people who know people who were somehow alive during the Civil War and that kind of concept of time just doesn't register with any of us. Like that was so long ago, it doesn't exist in, in real time. So historical memory, what is it? Um, how long does it last? And specifically in the case of our current moment, uh, do, do we still have some residual cultural memories from the, the Spanish flu, which any of us have only just read about? Oh gosh, I don't. I stumped I don't know them. That I stumped them. <laughs> you did. I don't know that I can. I can. Um, you, Lauren, Adam, feel free to add on because I. I don't know that I'm going to be good at defining what historical memory is, um, but I kind of think of it as the way we, as a society, um, maybe in our literature, in our films, media, um, memoirs, social media now, how we remember historical events, and especially crises like the Spanish influenza, the influenza of 1918, um, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that that really entered into the historical kind of public consciousness until, at least I didn't hear a lot about it in the public discourse until we had COVID-19, and then suddenly it's become a lot more important. Um, the pandemic that I, my students love anyway is the Black Death. They love talking about the bubonic plague um, as kind of this moment of, of Western cultural memory. I don't, I don't know, but I think it, it, it all depends on the society you belong to, um, what your religious identity, your racial identity is, what is going to stand out in your cultural memory. Um, so, I mean, for not to, to go down a rabbit hole here, but like for Hungary's current crisis and this erosion of democracy that we've been talking about, I think the memories, the, the public, the, the way the public remembers Hungarian history in Hungary, the way they're taught it in schools um, has really contributed to the rise of Orban as kind of a strongman leader. Um, and that has to do with a, a lot with um, the victimhood narrative in Hungary that you could say starts with 1526 maybe and the Battle of Mohac when the Ottomans invade Hungary. Um, and then after that, they had kind of this like pure form, this Hungarian leadership up until then, um, their own autonomous kingdom. And then after the Ottoman occupation, you have the Habsburgs. And then 
after that, um, you know, you have Austria-Hungary, um, 1848 failed nationalist revolution, the Habsburgs put that down as well with help from the Russian Empire. Um, and then you have the First World War and the Treaty of Trianon, which Hungarians talk about all the time. I mean, when I, when I lived there, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But when I, when I lived there, I taught English. And the first thing my 15-year-old students did was draw the Empire of Hungary on the board in chalk. They were really good at it too, actually. And then they showed me all of the areas that Hungary lost after the First World War with this treaty that was part of the Paris Peace Conference ending the First World War. Um, and they said, this should be Hungary. So it's this nationalist narrative of memory, of historical memory, but it's also of us being victims um, right. and wanting to restore something. Uh, and then of course that they were victims of the Nazis too in World War II. And so they it kind of absolves them from having to deal with any kind of memory of being perpetrators or sending Jews to Auschwitz. Well, that was just the Nazis that did that. We were victims just like the Jews were. Forget that Hungarians sent Jews or collaborated or shot them into <clears throat> sure. the Danube. But, um, but yeah, go ahead. You guys jump in on this. I could go on. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um... I'm spitballing here because I haven't thought about this that much before this question was asked, but when I think about 1918 and world history and in German history, I think about before a month ago, I thought about the end of World War One, and then in Germany, I thought about um, a German revolution that gave um, way to a democratic government in Germany, um, which is the Weimar Republic that Adam um, has talked about. Uh, and I never thought about the Spanish flu. And so I don't know whether those other events kind of have overwritten cultural memory. Um, you know, I've certainly watched more movies that somehow touched on World War I than I have about the hospitals that were treating Spanish flu. Um, and that's a that's an interesting thought experiment. Like in 10 years, are we going to have a COVID movie and like, what will it look like? Um, my house is not going to be a very interesting location for that, but um, you can imagine a movie that focused on the first responders or something like that. Um, in terms of uh, historical memory then, and this kind of goes back to something Catherine said, I wonder if one of the reasons that the Spanish flu was difficult to remember um, is because it is kind of hard to, some of the stories that are most powerful in historical memory have kind of enemies, they have binaries, they have kind of victims and victors, losers and winners, and um, it's hard to, it's hard to know what to blame when their real enemy is, you know, invisible. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I wonder about whether that's a reason that the Spanish flu hasn't been as more in our historical memory. I'm curious, Adam, whether you think that the Spanish flu impacted Weimar in ways that we are now going to recognize looking back at history with these fresh eyes where we all know how much a pandemic can upend our lives. That's actually exactly what I was going to say. And, and I come in with the same uh, statement that in, in some ways both of you have mentioned. I actually don't know right now, and I'm sure it exists, but I don't know of any um, scholarship that actually details Weimar Germany, Germany in the 1920s, Germany in the 1930s, its response, its reaction uh, to uh, the Spanish flu. Um, 
which incidentally, uh, I think it's always important to, to talk about. The only reason it has the name Spanish flu is because Spain was one of the only countries, if not the only country at that time, to actually report accurate numbers. Best estimates suggest that it actually started in Kansas. And so I think it's important to understand uh, 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 how names can actually, and, and labels can actually have really powerful uh, impacts uh, societally and also historically. And the reason I make that one point in particular is, and to link it to, to Lauren's question uh, or, or statement, uh, is not just to, to pronounce trivia, but my hunch is if anybody in Weimar Germany on the left or primarily the political right talked about it, it was within the same context of fearing the other. Uh, the other brings disease. The other brings elements that are foreign to Germany that uh, we are rightfully supposed to be afraid of. Uh, we are a young republic or we uh, are uh, a disenfranchised monarchy, depending on what side one of, of the spectrum one might be on. Uh, either way, the quote unquote other is a problem. Um, and I suspect, as, as Lauren suggested, I, I do think that there are going to be some very interesting studies that emerge within the next five or 10 years uh, that investigate this period uh, uh, with a new perspective. Um, and uh, not to, not to uh, belabor the point, but just to, to add my two cents on collective memory, um, I don't know if there is a specific date to how long it can have an impact uh, in either a society uh, or historically. Um, but what I'm about to say with respect to Weimar is the memory of Weimar in Germany and how it plays out today. This is somewhat a gross, a gross generalization, but in my years and over the last years of living in Germany and spending time there, uh, some of the main differences socially and collectively that I see between Germany and the United States uh, often in many respects have to do with memory of Weimar. Um, there is a general, uh, not fear, but uh, hesitance to go into debt. Um, the use of credit cards are only something that really, uh, I mean, you guys, both of you, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I remember when I was doing my dissertation research only 10 years ago, not even, it was very hard to pay with a card, a debit card. And that had to do with this memory of the Great Depression and the crisis that, that, that befell upon Germany leading to the rise of the Nazis. So there was the sense of being very fiscally responsible and that will prevent something like that from happening again. Um, we don't see, still, we don't see the German flag uh, as uh, displayed prominently, informally or, uh, or formally, uh, as much as you would see in the United States, because there's this fear of, of nationalism. Uh, they don't see it as a patriotic move uh, outside of, uh, of course, World Cup. Uh, but outside of that venue, it's, 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 there's, there's hesitation of, dis, of demonstrating that kind of thing. Um, and again, these are some generalizations, but I think that in the public, in public venues, that's one impact that we absolutely can see collective memory from that period still having an impact today. If yeah, I can, and, oh, go okay. ahead, Lauren. Yeah, yeah, I'll just jump yeah. quickly because Great. Adam made me think of something. Um, we do know very well that um, anti-Semitic tropes and other tropes of demonizing the other under fascism in Nazi Germany, often focused on like these people are bringers of disease um, and kind of saw them as an inherently sick and disease bringing population based on no reality. But I wonder if those tropes had a particular impact because of recent memories of the Spanish flu. This is a speculation, but it's very true that anti-Semitism often links um, Jewish people to disease, um, that anti-Roma and Sinti sentiment similarly linked those populations to the disease. I mean, again, to just look at the today, um, the kind of administ our administration's attempt to kind of call it China flu 
is this, um, yeah, as Adam said, it's called Spanish flu because Spanish, Spain was the only place with a free press at the time. Um, uh, right now, um, China does not have a free press, but uh, calling it China flu links it to um, Asians um, and Asian Americans and people of Asian descent in a way that has led to, you know, unjustified hate crimes against that community. And so uh, COVID-19, you know, the coronavirus, um, doesn't we shouldn't make the mistake of calling it the Spanish flu again actually I guess is one way to put that um Catherine yeah I, I was going to comment on something else but now uh you mentioned the Roma and that seems um so much more urgent um especially with what's going on in Eastern Europe and Central Europe in places like Hungary so um the Roma or um, gypsies as they're called in Hungary and other places are some of Europe's most marginalized people um, and they often live in very overcrowded settlements or housing on the outskirts of villages. Sometimes they don't have access to running water. And there's this idea that they're the other. Um, I mean, we saw that with Holocaust. Um, you know, I mean, they were one of the, the largest victim groups of the Holocaust and, and just throughout European history. Um, and so as in other crises, and especially with diseases, I think that Roma are being targeted during the coronavirus. Um, and we don't have all of the information about that because governments like Bulgaria and other places are not just offering up like, look how, look at how we're treating the Roma people right now. Um, but in Hungary, this has also been a very racialized thing with the coronavirus. Um, and I know that some Roma communities have been kind of cordoned off um, with checkpoints. And the justification is that these people are kind of dirty, they're not sanitary, and we're stopping the spread of the virus to our normal population. And I've actually heard some of that rhetoric in the United States, which, in the United States, which is pretty alarming. Um, I can't remember if it was, in it was a court case um, that I was kind of, you know, briefly reading through in Iowa. And one of the um, judges said something about like, oh, well, those numbers of the coronavirus that skyrocketed yesterday was because they tested um, a meatpacking plant where, of course, like 80% of the workers were um, Latino. And um, she actually said like, those weren't normal people or those weren't our normal citizens. And I don't know if she meant it to be malicious in that way, but you hear that kind of same rhetoric, the, the othering during disease periods like this. So, so one of the aspects of your comments now about the, the memory thing made me um, bring to mind, brings to my mind that um, the memory may not be literal. For example, uh, an audience person mentioned the comment that, that the Spanish flu has never read anything about it. It's the literal memory of it is not, in, is not part of our current well, it's, we're bringing it back now because of the coronavirus, but um, it's also the case that um, I think the book I'm thinking of is Malcolm Gladwell's Blink, that there are pockets of, the, of this country where um, in different parts of this country, immigrants typically came from certain regions of Europe or wherever, um, and they brought their cultural habits with them, brought from generations of life there, and those cultural habits maintain themselves three or four or five generations later with no reason whatsoever, meaning no memory for why they originated in the first place. So 
I think it's possible that some of this cultural memory is, is um, or sorry, historical memory is uh, embodied in just cultural manifestations that we're not even aware of. Yeah. Um, Ken, if I can pick up on that point, I actually was talking to a colleague recently who works on Chinese history, and um, she pointed out that the first um, outbreak globally that was stopped with masks was in China. It was a plague outbreak in late 19th century China. And so similarly, um, you know, maybe the reason that mask wearing has been more um, prevalent in China and in uh, Asian countries, East Asian countries, has been something about this kind of deep historical memory because they were actually the first people to successfully prevent an outbreak um, or, you know, calm down what an outbreak saying, right. of a disease with uh, the use of masks. Um, so a good innovation. Everybody wear your mask when you have to. <laughs> right. So uh, here's a, a question that arose from the audience. Um, Hannah Arendt has pointed out that um, the, the rise of totalitarianism is sometimes um, driven by a couple of things in tandem. One is making science unreal um, and repeating lies until they get believed. And boy, does that sound familiar. Um, does that work, I mean, in your historical studies, Weimar or other aspects of, do those two things ring a bell? I hate to say it 100%. Um, there are okay. numerous examples that I know both Catherine and, and Lauren could, could talk about in the case of Weimar. I'm going to point to one. Uh, by no means is this the only, um, but arguably the most infamous, uh, at least in the early period, but it lasts throughout, um, uh, is something referred to as the stab in the back legend, um, the Doxtos Legenda, as it was called in German. Um, and I, I'm sure many in the audience are familiar with the phrase stab in the back. This, this is not some, this, you know, you know, cute little statement about whatever. Uh, this is a virulent anti-Semitic argument that um, uh, in some cases, every political party, including those on the left with the, with the exception of the communist party actually proliferated for a period of time, but later on, especially the, the extreme right. Uh, but the, the crux behind it was um, Jews and pacifists, but primarily Jews in the home front or on the home front during the first world war, uh, stabbed the German army in the back by negotiating peace or by ultimately surrendering uh, and agreeing to the diktat of Versailles as it was referred to um, when Germany was on the brink of a great military victory uh, and what gave this completely illogical lacking any credibility uh, whatsoever argument some uh, justification in the eyes of, of, of many people was that in November of 1918 when the armistice was signed uh, the German army uh, in all spheres was still fighting uh, outside of what was pre-war World War One German borders so the perception that they were winning in this offensive way was there um, and there was also this lingering um, nonsensical argument that Jews did not do their fair share of the fighting when actual reports and studies that the military conducted in 1916 and 1917 said the exact opposite. But nevertheless, it, it, it uh, benefited in the eyes of, of the German military leadership. It benefited, this, this mentality and this myth uh, benefited them because if they didn't lose the war in the, in the eyes of the German public, then they could shift blame to someone else and still keep their, uh, their romantic image in the post-war period. Um, so I think that is something that is, is prominent in the history of Weimar and has a major impact 
uh, throughout the, the, the rest of the 14 years. Yeah, um, so to, to bring that to present day too, um, in Hungary, there are kind of conspiracy theories that the government has now embraced as well. Um, and they are anti-Semitic, surprise, surprise, in nature. Um, and one was started by the Jobbik party, which is the very far right um, fascist, neo-fascist party in Hungary. Um, I think their whole title is Movement for a Better Hungary. Um, and they encouraged the idea that Jews have incited the Roma, the gypsy communities in Hungary, toward violence um, toward the Hungarian people. Um, that these are kind of seen as outsiders. They can't be Hungarian. Um, and it's, it seems to me as a historian to be playing right into these kind of Weimar Nazi tropes, even though they're also saying that they're not connected to Nazism or to that period of, well, maybe the Jobbik do kind of embrace that period, but um, the, the government doesn't want to embrace that period. Um, but it actually led to a law called the um, Soros law that banned um, George Soros's uh, nonprofit in Hungary, um, which is of course, Lauren, you can probably speak to this more, um, has to deal with the migrant crisis. Hungary became kind of this cautionary tale in Europe um, about how um, exclusive they were and how or exclusionary and xenophobic they were when um, this refugee crisis came to Europe in 2015. Um, they had they kept refugee and asylum seekers in really horrible conditions, and this is still playing out um, even now uh, amid the coronavirus. Um, so yeah, I think we do still see some of these kind of nationalist lies and conspiracy theories, and it's very scary when they become part of the dominant political culture. Yeah, I'm sure I'm not the only person on this call who was uh, very angry uh, when Donald Trump suggested injecting yourself with bleach as a as a form of combating the coronavirus. I was extremely upset um, that the president had said something like this. Um, and initially, I was like, why would he say this? You know, that doesn't cure coronavirus. And um, I think then kind of stepping back from it, I had to think like, as a speech act, Trump isn't saying inject yourself with bleach as a way to cure coronavirus. That's not his objective in suggesting that his followers drink bleach. His objective is to give you a sense that he's in control, to give you a sense that he knows what he's doing, to give you a sense that he's the leader who can get us out of this crisis. And so I think um, kind of thinking about these conspiracy theories, you can think like, why does anyone, why would anyone say something like this? Um, and I think that if we think about it as a speech act that's saying something different from actually this is how to cure coronavirus, that's actually saying I'm a good leader and I know more than other people do. If we think about it in that way, we kind of get to that. And um, as Adam and Catherine have said, there's a lot of historical examples uh, of this. Uh, and again, here we see, we've seen conspiracy theories kind of pass globally, like the idea that coronavirus has something to do with 5G, or uh, again, the, anti the underlying anti-Semitism to a lot of um, the coronavirus. I, I mean, I'm a professor of European history, um, and so one of the first emails I got uh, about the coronavirus was 
uh, claimed that George Soros had created it in a lab. And uh, didn't I, a professor at a distinguished university, know this? Um, uh, just kind of a deranged email. Um, but uh, George Soros has been linked to a lot of these things, and it is kind of an anti-Semitic trope. Um, and uh, yeah, George Soros's um, father survived the Holocaust, um, and uh, his memoir is actually a very moving um, story of kind of where that leads. Uh, and it's yeah, I don't know where to go from there. Yeah, but for, I, the record, just, oh, ahead, for the record, for the record, I did not send that email, Lauren. Just so. <laughs> <laughs> I deleted. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I was just going to say that um, for those who don't know, George Soros is um, Hungarian American descent, and like Lauren said, his father survived the Holocaust, and his um, writings have been banned in Hungary. Um, and not only George Soros, who is you know, anti-Semites all the world, all over the world, kind of associate him with these weird global conspiracies. Um, but it's not just George Soros. Um, Orban just um, revamped the curriculum in Hungary, and they're no longer reading Imre Kertes, who is the only Nobel Peace Prize winner from Hungary. Um, he wrote a book, I think in English, it's Fatelessness, and it's about his experiences in the Holocaust. And so they're not reading that. They're kind of whitewashing that period of Hungarian history. Hungary was, they were the victims of that, you know, so it doesn't behoove them to talk about Jewish survivors. Um, no. As we saw in um, the 9-11, I guess that was a crisis or a moment, it wasn't an unfolding crisis, but a uh, traumatic moment for sure. It's uh, easier, it's easier for politicians to motivate citizens when there's a crisis in play. And certainly the coronavirus is a legitimate crisis. Um, could you talk a little bit maybe about um, created crises versus legitimate crises? How do they get deployed by people who aspire to total control? Sure, I know Adam will have something to say about this and Weimar, but um, I'll, I'll say something about just kind of how I have come to think about crises philosophically in terms of my research. Um, as I said, I, when the, the refugee crisis happened in 2015, I felt like politicians were responding in the same way they had responded to every movement of immigrants for the last 60 years. I could trace just the straight line back. It didn't matter how many immigrants had come in that year. They would say very similar things. Um, and so I came to think that kind of to elevate something to crisis um, is kind of to make a script around something that it's new, um, that we haven't seen something like this before. Um, and to some extent that no one could have foreseen this and it came from outside, that it wasn't part of the system. Um, and so that's certainly true of a lot of these crises. No one knew that um, planes were going to fly into the World Trade Center. No one could have precisely said that this little molecule would come and uh, ravish people in the way that it does in these bizarre symptomatic um, things that we've seen. But if you look at the reporting, you can see that the Centers for Disease Control had warned at the end of 2019 if a pandemic happens, the United States is not prepared for it. Um, and in fact, that they had been making this warning every year 
uh, for, for over a decade at this point. And so I think sometimes um, what, I, what I mean to say here is that I think when the language of crisis is mobilized, it's important to say like, well, what in the system we already had also is contributing to this so that we don't end up passing laws and making measures that just give power to politicians, but that actually change things so that this is less likely to happen in the future. Um, I don't know if that quite answers the question, but I know I mentioned the crisis script that I think about. Um, and so I think it's important to say, are we using the crisis script to just give Orban a lot of power to do whatever he wants? Or are we using the crisis script to say, hey, let's step back and think about how we can prepare better um, so that our, our hospitals and our social safety net will be better prepared if something like this happens again in the future. Um, yeah. Adam is either um, nodding in vigorous agreement or nodding off. Adam? <laughs> <laughs> the former, the former, I promise. Um, yes, in all honesty. Uh, if I may piggyback on that exact point, um, two very brief things I will say, one legitimate and one not. Um, uh, I think one legitimate crisis that, that follows much of what Lauren just spoke of was the Great Depression. And I think that that was a legitimate unfolding, you know, sudden in, 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 the, in the November 1929 aspect of it, but something that of course then continued in various ways for years, depending on where we're talking about. In the case of Germany, one must remember that this was its second massive economic depression in the same decade. All right. And I'm not saying it was unique even in that respect, but this was a seismic catastrophe. Um, and if we talk about the playbook, um, if we were to use that phrase, uh, in some respects, no, nothing in history is inevitable. Uh, in some respects, I think this, this really served as the beginning of the end in some ways, historically speaking, with, with the, the benefit of perspective, because this was the final issue, the final event that I think really um, uh, led a lot of uh, status quo uh, political parties, middle of, of either side of the spectrum, uh, to really lose the support of not everybody, not even a majority, but a considerable number of people who lost faith in the republic. It, this this cannot continue. This it, the seemingly um, uh, is something that that is not going to sustain itself. Um, and by that point, the defenders of the republic were frankly exhausted. And 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 I think that's something that's really important to think about. A manufactured crisis that without question was the final nail in the coffin, if you will, of Weimar. Uh, one, one uh, out, people out there may, may uh, uh, critique my, my periodization here a little bit, but after Adolf Hitler was chancellor, was, was proclaimed chancellor by Paul von Hindenburg, the president of the Republic, uh, in January of 1930, 33, excuse me, the next month, the so-called Reichstag fire occurs. Um, and this is something that I think we're, we're seeing more and more about with in, in, in relation to COVID, um, where uh, uh, the fire was real, but who the Nazis said was responsible for it was not, absolutely not. And even if it was right, even if they were correct in, in the, who the arsonists were, their response was uh, uh, an effort to seize complete control, which of course they did. Uh, one of the great tragedies, if not the central great tragedy of Weimar is that it voted itself out of existence. The very next month, they uh, the, the Weimar uh, assembly passed something referred to as the Enabling Act, which did not disband Weimar, but kept suspending it for four years. And they kept renewing that subsequently until the end of the Third Reich. And what it effectively enabled Adolf Hitler to do was to rule by decree. Um, and I think that in many respects links to some of the things that Catherine was alluding to earlier. Um, so legitimate crisis, fake crisis, all have a, a direct role 
in this particular history and its, its uh, effects today. Yeah, and I, I think that brings us back to the question too of when, when does a crisis end? And, and maybe Lauren, this is something you posed and who decides when a crisis ends? Um, like the, the refugee crisis of 2015 was, I know, used in Hungary and a lot of Central European countries um, as kind of a major selling point for right-wing political parties. Um, and, you know, was that how, to what extent was the, the refugee crisis kind of fabricated in some of those places, or at least um, accentuated to instill fear, um, to kind of encourage this culture of fearing the other um and using it to as a political campaign and of course like coronavirus is a legitimate um crisis but you know when when does it end when do when does the hungarian parliament decide okay well we don't need the coronavirus law anymore or is it like you know the weimar period where these things kind of just extend because we know this is really this this all is just the veneer of democracy anyway in a lot of places and Poland's kind of on this path as well um so I mean that's a question I don't I don't know if I have the answer to um who decides when a crisis is over and something like the coronavirus where we're going to see more surges of it maybe in the next few years um well I, I do have the answer for that but I can't reveal it for 15 years so, um yeah I'll, I'll <clears throat> one more thing about this question of kind of when a crisis ends. Um, Germany has controlled it relatively well um, with a lockdown, uh, but one thing that they did was they had to bring, they had to bring in the vegetables for har harvest. They had to bring in the asparagus. And so um, because they did not want Germans to risk their lives picking asparagus, they flew in 80,000 immigrants from poorer countries, Romania and Bulgaria chiefly and put them in kind of camps where they could pick asparagus. Um, they're making money, um, you know, they're, they're low paid agricultural workers. But now all of the hotspots of Corona are in those farm worker camps, are in meat packing plants that are largely immigrant labor in Germany. That's the kind of the same case here. And like, if you think about something like, I don't know, like Tyson, right? A chicken processing plant. Um, you know very well that like the CEO of Tyson will be continuing to socially distance until this is over. Um, but that the people who are at the very bottom, um, who are the low paid workers who actually slaughter the animals um, are going to be sent back kind of depending on when states decide. I mean, they're essential workers, so they're already back at work. But this question of kind of when can we go back to work? Like that looks very different for different people. Um, Again, like with Amazon, I can promise you Jeff Bezos is not going and meeting strangers right now, um, but that uh, Amazon workers are being required to continue to work in close quarters. So, so I think that's raise, another question about who can shelter from a crisis. So I'll raise, uh, that raises an interesting question that I suspect Adam has no idea, nothing to say about it, but I'll pose it anyway, um, which is that uh, in, in the case of the Hungarian asparagus pickers or uh, in, in this country, the, the folks working at meat packers, they're there because of economic disparity as much as anything else. And because of their circumstances of where they have to work and so on, um, they are uh, more exposed to, uh, in this case, the, the virus itself. And then 
but then that can lead into um, or could lead into a, a rhetoric of the weak forms of humanity versus strong forms of humanity, uh, strains, races, perhaps. Adam, might you have any thoughts on that? Sure, you know, and, and again, that's, that's a great question. Um, and it's something that I promise I will not do, but I, I, we all could, I know, but in, in, in the connection of this particular time period, we can go on and on and on about. But uh, what I will say uh, about the idea of a weak population, a, str a strong variation within, um, that rhetoric, uh, unfortunately, very much played into the rhetoric of contemporary Europe in the 1920s and 1930s, and not just in um, uh, non-democratic or illiberal democracies. Um, I think one of the great um, consequences and something that we're, this is a, a framework, a national framework that we're, uh, I should say a political framework that much of the world still exists in. Um, the Treaty of Versailles, the Paris Peace Conference, uh, the Treaty of Saint-Germain, etc. They all created a scenario where governments viewed their their, their citizens and their, and their so-called subjects in terms of populations, po population politics. Um, I know Lauren has worked with Tara Zara, uh, and there are many others that, that, that have talked about this. But the world effectively uh, in the 1920s, including the United States, started to, view started to view their citizens in this very rigid racial, ethnic, uh, national uh, mindset. And when we, when we take that mentality, and they did so not, not necessarily with any inherent malicious uh, rationale, but that's of course what ended up happening because when you, you govern a society based exclusively on who belongs and who does not, who's a full-fledged member and who, who is not, you then really create these very dangerous circumstances, which of course really uh, uh, emerge, especially in the 1930s in Europe and then elsewhere. Uh, but in, in the context of your question, when you already have that kind of scenario as a backdrop, it is then much easier for politicians in this case, but also strong movements, populists, et cetera, to say, these people are weak, they are others, uh, they bring disease, they, they are lazy, they don't actually do anything for the Volksgemeinschaft or whatever else you might call it. Uh, and therefore we need to weed them out either through expulsion or in the extreme, and I'm not saying that that isn't an extreme uh, answer, but in the ultimate extreme, mass murder. Um, and I think uh, an example of that outside of Germany at that time period is, is Turkey, what we've talked about. The nation state of Turkey as it was created and the expulsion of Greek populations, so-called Greek populations, who the, who the Turkish government said these are Greeks, even though they might not have identified as such. All right. And the same thing happens across Europe. We are at 6.40 in Laramigo time zone. Um, time to sort of gracefully unwind. So maybe I'll leave as an open-ended thing if any of the three of you have had thoughts trickling in the back of your mind that didn't come out and you want to, uh, to share them now as we move towards uh, uh, wrapping up. I told Scott we'd be done before midnight, so we, we do need to attend to this. So. Somebody's got to yeah, speak. Yeah, I'll... I'll um... <laughs> jump off of what Adam just said, which is, I mean, again, you do see these parallels today. We know that in real hotspots like New York and, and my own um, hometown of Chicago, um, African-American populations, Hispanic population, Latinx populations, like immigrant populations have been hit harder by the virus. Um, and so it's been kind of worrying to see that as that's become clearer, um, some of our elected officials have been saying, well, it's over, right? We've controlled it. Um, 
this is only hitting certain populations, so we care less. And that's been really demoralizing. And then there are these very explicit cases like in Germany where, you know, the reason that the hotspots are in these camps for these agricultural workers are because they live very close together, there's poor sanitation, there's little access to running water, right? Any of us would be more likely, anyone in the world would be more likely to get corona under those conditions. And so it's important to think about, are we, what are we stigmatizing here? And what we should be stigmatizing is poor housing conditions, right? Um, and then one other thing is I think that um, it's been interesting to see two kind of crisis is deployed and we're obviously in a crisis. There's no doubt about that, but it's been interesting to see how it's deployed to things that are obviously trying to go and like attack what we're, what we're facing, which is this virus. And then this coming and extant unemployment crisis that is leading to all kinds of crises. Um, and then just the language of crisis kind of allows these acts. So like I know Orban, one of his first acts was to say, okay, under the Corona Act, I'm going to make it illegal for transgender people to change their gender. That's not creating disease, you know? Why are you doing this? <laughs> I think that it's important to kind of look at what our leaders do in moments of crisis and say, well, what are you linking? And what, what do we actually need you to do? Um, I, you know, I don't think that um, Trump's immigration ban right now that has exemptions for agricultural workers because we really do like having vegetables on our plates. Um, I, we have more cases of corona than anyone else in the world, right? Why we should have an immigration ban um, if, if we're being honest with ourselves. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of see what is crisis enabling that exceeds what's actually necessary. And that's an important question for us to ask maybe as citizens. Yeah, and I, I think um, to, to kind of push public history here and, and thinking about memory, that's why these conversations are so important um, that we need to pay attention to the historical narrative. And, and those of us who have the privilege often to shelter and to not be as affected by these crises um, also have the privilege um, not to think about history as much. Um, we, of course, do as historians, but I was um, reading um, a Native author recently, um, Tommy Orange, and in, in his interlude, he writes something about how, um, you know, Black and Brown Indigenous populations don't have the privilege of not thinking about history. It's just part of, it's part of their identity, and I mean, maybe, um, I'm sure there's some different experiences, um, but I think that people with a lot of privilege in, in the societies that we're talking about, um, not just Hungary, um, not just the United States, but, but probably across the globe, um, really need to think about history and need to have these discussions um, so that we can pay attention to um, a law that is about public health that's affecting transgender people or um, populations of the Roma people who really don't have a voice for themselves as much just being kind of cordoned off and if they die, well, you know, I mean, that seems to be the rhetoric, which I find really troubling in a lot of places. Um, so yeah, we need to pay attention to these things. Yeah. Adam? Full agreement. Um, and uh, I hope this is actually acceptable in this venue, but that this question and I think the overarching conversation uh, uh, 
led to an area where I thought we might get. Uh, I've been, been spending the last couple of days really thinking about this topic, generally speaking. Um, uh, and I, the last few days, I was reminded of, I think, uh, a very uh, one of the more powerful things I've ever read. Um, and uh, this book on Weimar Germany uh, came out originally in 2007. Uh, and I say that here because I think it's important to understand that this is not something that was written with, with a, a direct intent to, to strike people today. But, but if, if everyone's okay with it, I just want to read just that short paragraph. And it's not long because I think this, this addresses it. Uh, so from Weimar Germany, Promise and Tragedy. Weimar reminds us that democracy is a fragile thing, society an unstable construction, each threatening to spin wildly out of control. It shows us the dangers that can develop when there is no societal consensus on any of the fundamental issues of politics, social order, and culture. Democracy can be fertile soil for all sorts of interesting debates and for the effervescence of the cultural spirit. But when virtually every debate becomes a live or die question about the essential features of human existence, from the intimacy of the bedroom to the structure of the business world, when every issue is seen to carry earth-shattering significance, when there is no overarching system of belief to which most people give their loyalty, a democracy cannot long endure. And it is especially, and it especially cannot endure when powerful groups in that society seek at every turn to undermine and destroy its very being. The threats to democracy are not always from enemies abroad. They can come from those within who espouse the language of democracy and use the liberties afforded by democratic institutions to undermine the substance of democracy. Weimar cautions us to be wary of those people as well. What comes next can be very bad, even worse than imaginable. Uh, and that last line in particular, uh, I think, is something that we need to think about in this context of crisis, how these forces use these issues, uh, and the lessons of, of everything that we've discussed, the historical lessons of everything we've discussed today. And on that cheery note, I, it was very, that was a, a, great, a great piece to, to read, Adam, and I thank you for that. Um, and I'll move into wrapping up now. We're past uh, 6.45 Laramigo time. Um, uh, I thank you all three of you very much again for spending this time. It was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I had the pleasure just to sit and listen to the three of you for the most part, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. I will um, make a take off on something that you various of you raised, which is that things like, for example, uh, the coronavirus currently is, was declared to be unpredictable, and how could we know it was coming by some of the people who are perhaps exploiting it for their own advantage? Whereas, as was said, uh, the Centers for Disease Control had been warning us about this for 10 years. Well, a plug, two weeks hence, uh, our two panelists, one of them is David Quammen, uh, whose 2012 book, Spillover, uh, he's a science writer, um, was very clear about the fact that we're going to be heading into a coronavirus. And David, his, his wife Betsy is, of all things, she's a historian. Um, <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but, but she has written a book recently about Clive and Bundy and God and how that, their religious beliefs and how that fits into everything. Um, and the two of them are going to be our panelists uh, two weeks hence, and, and they're going to meld together uh, their writings and, and focus it on the current moment. So thank you again, all three of you. It's been a dear pleasure to spend this time with you. Um, and I look forward to having another immigrant to the, uh, the Rocky Mountain West sometime this summer. Thanks all. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Okay, Scott Thank wants you. us to hang on for a few minutes so he can debrief us and tell us why he's kicking us off.